0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Cindy Yik Yi Chu. Cindy is a professor of history at Hong Kong Baptist University, the author of many studies on the Catholic Church in China and in Hong Kong. And today we're going to be talking to Cindy about one of her most recent of these contributions, The Chinese Sisters of the Precious Blood and the Evolution of the Catholic Church, recently published by Palgrave. Cindy, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's really good for me to be able to come to the show.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. Before we talk about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, I'm born and raised in Hong Kong. So I study my undergraduate in history in University of Hong Kong. And I also got my master's degree in University of Hong Kong. Then I got a scholarship from the East West Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. So I did my PhD studies in University of Hawaii. And after I finished my PhD studies, I moved on to teach in my present university, um the university uh in Hong Kong here, the Hong Kong Baptist University. And uh, I've been teaching here for more than 20 years. So uh, I I could be claimed to be a the older generation of my department.
0: Experienced is probably better the word to use than older. Um, Cindy, you've obviously written a great deal about Christianity in modern China and Hong Kong. And in fact, that is the title of a series that you edit for Palgrave, in which this book, The Chinese Sisters of the Precious Blood and the Evolution of the Catholic Church, is a very distinguished contribution. Could you tell us something about this Palgrave series, Christianity in Modern China?
1: Yes. I have been working with Palgrave for a long time, and Palgrave was interested in doing a series on Christianity in modern China. And of course, I, I am the person to ask because I've been publishing with them. So this series is not just on Catholic Church, it also covers the Protestant churches and also the Orthodox Church. So we like to know about the three different branches of Christianity in modern China Catholic Church, Protestant Church, and Orthodox Church. And so far, we have published a number of books. For example, we have a scholar from the United States. She published a book on the Jesuit in China. And we have a scholar from Taiwan. She published two edited volumes on the church in Taiwan. So it is quite dynamic with both Chinese and non-Chinese publishing, and also on different parts of China, mainland China, and also uh, Taiwan and also Hong Kong. So I do encourage anyone interested in Christianity in China to approach me and to submit their manuscripts. And PhD students or PhD candidates, please pay attention to this series. We are interested in publishing your work.
0: That's wonderful. It's a great opportunity and a great publisher to work with as well. Good. Cindy, one of the things that you've done over your long and very distinguished academic career in terms of publishing on Chinese Christian history... Is that you have worked consistently to give women a voice as historical subjects? How important is that rediscovery of women's voices for your work generally?
1: I think that is very important because, for myself, I did feel kind of um maybe quote unquote discriminated because I am a woman, and uh, this happened to me both in my work and outside my work. So um. Originally, I was interested in doing Chinese foreign relations or Sino-American relations, mainly on the political and diplomatic platforms. But then I began to think, should I do more on the cultural side, on China's relations with foreigners on the cultural side? And then I also added that woman phenomenon, that means China and foreigners how about China and female foreigners in uh, the cultural side? And because I myself, I was educated by American sisters in Hong Kong. So I did have some connections with them. And one day I, I sat at home and thought about a new topic for myself, meaning to study these American sisters who have been educating us in Hong Kong for many years, for many decades. That is somewhat like Sino-American relations, but um, on the side of the cultural relations. And we also try to understand women in their missionary work. Now, women here would be the American sisters. Now, when we talk about the American sisters, they are Catholic sisters, but they mainly work with Chinese. And they work with Chinese women and children. So by working on these American women, we also learn about Chinese women in Hong Kong history. And that book I wrote was on the Mary sisters in Hong Kong. That was from the 1920s to the 1960s. And that was supposed to be something really new at that time, because um, actually in the Catholic Church history, not many people write on Catholic women, not many on Catholic sisters. So, my book was really quite new on Catholic sisters, and I think it's still considered as new because there was not so much information on foreign sisters in Chinese society, so, I still think my book is is relatively in the forefront in Catholic studies in china yes
0: now you've you've obviously had that focus maintained that focus on Catholic women experiences across your very considerable publishing career. Um, how does how do these earlier publications fit into this new project, the Chinese Sisters of the Precious Blood and the Evolution of the Catholic Church?
1: Oh, um, this is really quite a good topic because, as I mentioned to you before, um, I myself feel that women needed a voice, and um, and I would like to. Tell other people what they have done in the past, how for example, Chinese sisters, Chinese nuns have worked for their own people, but their history um well actually has not been written. For example, here in Hong Kong, well, because originally we were um being uh taken care by the Italian priest, and then much of the work on Hong Kong's church was about the Italian priest or the Italian missions. Now that's very good. That's good. But then we also need to know more about the Chinese people, how they reacted to foreign missionaries. Now, then we tend to focus more on Chinese men because those people who interacted with foreign missionaries were mainly like, um, intellectuals in China, also two intellectuals. They were able to interact with foreign missionaries and therefore when we studied the Chinese side both in China and in Hong Kong we tended to focus on the men but never on the women and it was difficult to focus on the women also because there there was no written material no written material on the women in the Catholic Church and suddenly I, I realized that the Precious Blood Sisters here in Hong Kong they do Keep their archives and in very good shape, and in that sense, that will be able to give the um, readers or the audience the 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 understanding of women in the Catholic Church. And now, in um, my study about the Chinese women in the Catholic Church, so that would be studying the minority in the Catholic Church, the the women. And also the Chinese. And I, I, I do think that my work is, uh, is new to the study of Catholic Church in Hong Kong and in China. Because, uh, even when we look into, uh, Catholic studies in China, in modern China, there, there are no studies on, on Chinese sisters. But we know that there were Chinese sisters in China and but it's, it just, people didn't study them. We, we do have people talking about foreign missionaries, foreign Catholic sisters, but we, we, we don't have people talking about Chinese sisters in China before 1949. So my book will be new and, um, giving a hint to others who want to do research on Catholic church history that we should look into Chinese sisters in Chinese society as well. Yeah, that's my intention.
0: Okay. Now it's it's a, it's a really rich and complex period for historians to work on this period, early twentieth century China uh, in particular. But y- your book takes us a little bit further back into the, the later nineteenth century to describe the beginnings of the, the the relationships that would eventually coalesce in the precious blood sisters. So, Cindy, how did the Chinese Sisters of the Precious Blood actually emerge as a congregation?
1: Okay, I think this is not just on local history. People might not have realised, even the sisters themselves, when I talked to them, they did not realise that their history was really tied to the entire history of the Roman Catholic Church. Because the Roman Catholic Church in 1919, well, acknowledged, acknowledged the contribution of local people in the mission fields, and it also asked for the indigenization of the Catholic Church in China. What do we mean by indigenization? That means we gave power to the local priests and nuns in China. So local priests and nuns will have the same status, same standing as foreign priests and nuns. Now, this was heard In Hong Kong. This was heard in Hong Kong. And at that time, the Italian bishops also wanted to respond to the Catholic Church. Oh, sorry, I have to cough. (coughs) Sorry. And they also wanted to respond to the Catholic Church. So they saw that there was a small group of Chinese sisters here, the Precious Blood Sisters, and they were under the supervision of the Italian sisters, the Kenosian sisters. They were not independent, but they were under the supervision of the Kenosian sisters. And then the Italian bishop thought, now since, since the Vatican wanted the local people to have real power, maybe we could grant the precious blood sisters real power that they became independent. So in 1919, the Italian bishop in Hong Kong asked asked that the Precious Blood Sisters be independent and move out from the Italian convent to a um a transition convent if I can use that word a transition place in in Kowloon in Kowloon and they did stay in that transition place for some time until 1929 when they moved to their permanent convent somewhere else. So from 1919 to 1929, they were in a transition place and they were in a transition toward um, having their own convent and having um, their own headquarters in Hong Kong.
0: We'll come to uh, the significance of 1929 in just a moment or two, Cindy. But before we do, could you explain to us what the purpose of the precious blood sisters was
1: actually their purpose was quite like the purposes of other foreign congregations um well they very importantly they have to educate the local people to educate the chinese girls and that and this goal was actually shared by other foreign sisters as well why because the sisters because they they, they came with a foreign religion, uh Catholicism, and in order to make themselves being accepted by the local people, they had to do something which the local people thought they were really useful, and for the Chinese to be able to give education to their Chinese girls was really, really useful. So for every congregation, they would, they would, build their own schools. This was the same for the uh, European sisters, the American sisters. They built their own schools and they educated young girls. And because of that, their importance was acknowledged by the Chinese people themselves. And also they, they were to give, um, help to the poor, like to give food, to give welfare to the, the poor. And also they set up their own hospital to give medical care. Um, and particularly important about the Precious Blood Sisters was that they set up orphanage for orphans in Hong Kong. So that was pretty, um, pretty good, pretty well done by the Precious Blood Sisters. And, um, that was the same case as the Italian sisters in Hong Kong, too. They have their own orphanage. So I would say that they were doing the same thing that other sisters were doing, but, um, maybe they would be Better accepted by their own people because uh, of their own background and because they are Chinese themselves. Okay. And they are still doing the same thing today. They're giving education. Um, they, they, uh, giving welfare and they were helping those, uh, children in, in problematic families. So they were continuing and still are continuing what they had done before. Yeah.
0: Now, one of the things that you tell us in the book and a number of times is that the Precious Blood Sisters were set up in part to give a focus to worshipping the Precious Blood of Jesus. What does that mean, Cindy?
1: Well, it just meant that they um, they put off a lot of attention on prayer. They put a lot of attention on prayer and on meditation. In their community life, they treasure very much their community life. Actually, sisters, Catholic sisters, they emphasise A lot on community life and through community life they thought they would be able to achieve um a higher spirit or to be able to really to reach to to jesus so by worshiping the precious blood of jesus it meant that they they focus a lot on prayer and um on their community work which meant that they would be uh reading uh, some scripts during certain times of the week and they discuss among themselves and they would, they would, uh, uh, not do their work for, for that maybe two hours and, but they would pray together. Then, um, it's supposed to help them in their spirituality. Well, that was a very good word, spirituality, because they believe that spirituality was so important. It affected their work and also affect their, their spirit, how they, how they treat. Their problems, how they could continue their very difficult work and very diff- uh, and under very difficult circumstances, it would be helping them quite a lot in their work. if they could keep up their spirituality and and prayer was ex- extremely important, so that was very unique about their congregation
0: yeah Now, you mentioned earlier on Cindy the importance of the year nineteen twenty nine that was the year in which one of the early leaders, Clara Tam, died. Um, It was also a period in which the congregation was being constituted with sometimes quite strict rules, Um, rules that said the sisters could not attend non-Catholic funerals, rules that said that the sisters could not cry or pray when non-Catholics were present. So there's a huge amount of organisation, but also change happening at the end of the 1920s. What was that experience like for the sisters?
1: Okay, Um, the 1920s were a very important period because... um, How to say, because for the Catholic Church, when they went out to do their missions, in the 1920s, they focused on China. For them, for foreign missions, the most important place would be China. So you you see many Europeans going to China. You see many Americans going to China. For example, the Maryknoll sisters, they were from the United States, and their first group of Foreign, missioner, foreign missionaries were, were going to China at that time. There was the first group of foreign missionaries were to China. So the nineteen twenties was really important for the Catholic Church in China because the whole attention was focused in, in the country. And for the precious blood sisters, in nineteen twenty nine, the permanent convent was built in Shenshepo, a district in Kowloon. Uh, Kowloon Peninsula, which is part of Hong Kong, and Sham Shui Po was supposed to be an area, a district for the working class. So that described the work of the precious Blood sisters that they help the lower class of society, that they help the working class. So that so the mother house, um, a present is still in Sham Shui Po. That means that they continue their the help for the lower class of society, for the working class. And why do they have such strict rules? I think that's the same for any sisters, any congregations, even for the American congregation, which was considered rather young, the Marino sisters. Because in 1929, the Precious Blood Sisters, they had their new, new convent, and also they had their the, the first constitution. And... The first constitution would definitely be quite straight, would be as straight as other sisters, other foreign sisters' constitutions. So when you read out those lines, they are, they, they are, they are very straight because, um, it's just happened to, to any sisters' congregation. For example, for the Maryknoll Sisters' constitution in 1912, there was a line saying that the, Marino sisters, the American sisters, they could not stand in the window. Why? They, because they would not allow outsiders to, to be able to see them in the house. So they could not stand near the window and they could not uh, go out to greet any, um, any visitors. So for Americans, it was so strict. So it's definitely quite strict also for the Precious Blood Sisters. So this is not anything new for the Catholic Sisters. It's it's actually rather common, yes.
0: Now, during the 1930s, the Sisters consolidate in their new organisational structures and with new leadership. But much of that work is disrupted, isn't it, during um, the the Chinese-Japanese War and especially after the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong in the 1940s, 41 to 45, I think you tell us, where... During that period, missionaries in the field were cut off from the mother house in Kowloon. How did that impact upon both the sisters who were still based in Hong Kong and those who were out in the field doing missionary educational work?
1: Okay, um, that's a good question. Well, actually, they were divided into two groups. One group, which is in um, which was in Kowloon, and another group, which was in the countryside. Now the group which was on on in the countryside, they could not go anywhere because um, the Japanese were here. But then they, they could not contact their mother house neither because uh, they were not allowed to go anywhere. So they lost contact with their mother house. Now this is a very interesting phenomenon because then you, you have to ask, then how could they keep up their spirit? Because they, they, they still had to do their work with the village people. Uh, I think they still have the freedom to do their missionary work with the village people. And, and then, then we have to see how, how, how could they keep up their missionary spirit? And how could they, um, uh, be able to, to, uh, help themselves in terms of, uh, food, in terms of, uh, clothing, in terms of, um, Looking after the the local Chinese people, how how could them they maintain their own livelihood? That would be very difficult. And at the same time, the the other group in Kowloon, well, actually they were living next door to the Japanese for the entire war because they were in their own mother house. But the Japanese took their hospital as um as as their 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 house in World War II. So they had to live with the uh, 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 Japanese very close to them. But then um, those sisters in Kowloon, they were able to well, continue their school in the mother house. Um, they have a very, very famous school which still exists called Dak Ching and that school continued during World War II And, uh, the sisters, because they had nothing to do except to take care of themselves or to sell things, uh, to make a living, um, they, then they focused their total attention on, on the school. So the girls who received education in the school, they were, they were really lucky because all the teachers were sisters and, um, they were able to get very good education from the sisters. Um, Catholic schools in Hong Kong um, might not be the same as Catholic schools in U.S. or England, because um, the people who studied in Catholic schools in Hong Kong they might not be Catholics. Usually, they were minority Catholics were minority in the Catholic schools in Hong Kong. Even at present, it's the same situation. So in the schools it would be great opportunity for the sisters to try to spread their faith to the young girls. So we see education was the focus of the sisters during World War II.
0: So during the 1940s the sisters faced huge challenges but your book shows us that those challenges were repeated in the 1950s after the Chinese government, the new Chinese government, brought in the three self movement which Um, led to the exodus from China of many missionaries as well as other kinds of refugees. How did that influx of refugees impact upon the work of the sisters in Hong Kong?
1: Okay. um, Actually, in the 1950s and 1960s, we could call that two periods as the refugee period because Hong Kong, well, increased its population to millions. There was just floods of um, immigrants or we call refugees to Hong Kong and foreign missionaries also in the early 1950s flooded to Hong Kong and these foreign missionaries were able to speak different Chinese dialects so were the precious blessed sisters because they were Chinese so their expertise was much welcomed by Hong Kong government Because Hong Kong government at that time was not prepared to have such a large influx of population. And it didn't want to spend so much money on these refugees neither. So the government was very happy to see the Chinese sisters, the foreign sisters, um, giving help in educating the people, giving welfare to the people, um, even uh, giving about food clothing to the people um at that time, housing was difficult in Hong Kong. People usually just um uh stay in squatter huts on the hillsides. They did not have any um fixed homes if there was a typhoon then um their their squatter huts would be destroyed, and they had no no home then so People were really, really poor at that time in Hong Kong. So the church, the Catholic church, actually contributed a lot to these refugees. And the government at that time was very happy about that. And the government actually uh, uh, collaborated with the Catholic church, with the sisters, to help the local people.
0: Now, you've, you've mentioned there, Cindy, the revolution that took place in the 1960s in China, often known as the Cultural Revolution. But the sisters in the same period were having to face a revolution within the Catholic Church too, weren't they? The impact of Vatican II, uh, which brought many challenges and, and really encouraged the sisters to think again about some of uh, the ways in which they had been doing things. How did the sisters balance up that cultural revolution in China with the sudden changes within the Catholic Church as a consequence of Vatican II?
1: Okay, um... I think the Chinese sisters themselves well they look upon the Cultural Revolution as something um of a horror. And at that time, as um many people know um they well they did they, they had no trust on the communists. So when that happened they it it well it made them believe that they were wa- that the the mistrust or the distrust of the communists was correct. It was it was right for them to have no trust on these Chinese communists. And at that time in Hong Kong itself, there was the leftist group as well. And then the leftist group also called for revolution. And as a result we um have uh the nineteen sixty seven uh we have um uh, uh um how to say, somewhat an uprising here in Hong Kong, and many people were afraid of what would happen in Hong Kong because the leftists in Hong Kong were imitating what was happening inside China so in Hong Kong, the Catholics, of course, they have no trust on the Communists and uh because they also saw the leftists here doing a lot of um damage to society and and society was not safe actually to be in. And then um there was always some kind of bombs in the nineteen sixties, nineteen sixty six, nineteen sixty seven, there were bombs on the streets. Um there was uh uprising or um and there were, I should say there were riots the riots, the nineteen sixty six riots. And um yeah, the, the sisters had to, had to learn how to cope with this. And, uh, so were normal Chinese at that time, uh, ordinary Chinese at that time. They had to learn how to cope with the danger in society. So it was considered to be a very dangerous time for the people in Hong Kong. And for Vatican II, uh, the second Vatican Council, uh, it was a great, uh, change. In the thinking of the Catholic Church. Um, uh, the sisters, they changed their outlook, meaning that they do, they did not need to wear the full habit since, uh, Vatican II. They could wear, um, a modified habit or sometimes they don't need to wear habit at all. Now, that was the outlook, the, external uh, appearance of the sisters. Another thing was that they were able to work in places which were not under their own congregation. Meaning that they were able to work in places, for example, in schools, in hospitals, which were not run by the Precious Blood congregation. That means that they were open to many different channels in work. um, And they were able to help the poor those needed people um regardless of who run those institutions they they might be run by Protestant churches that that they may be run by just um uh secular organizations that would be okay so long as they were able to help the poor people then it's it's okay for them to work in ethnic organizations um and, and and that really helped the sisters to be able to branch out to different areas and to be able to help the people um, whom they wanted to help.
0: Now, th- th- that um, discussion of Vatican II takes us back to your title uh, of the book, The Chinese Sisters of the Precious Blood and the Evolution of the Catholic Church. So, Cindy, as you look at the whole period you describe here from the late 19th century to the later 20th century, and obviously thinking of a congregation which continues to exist up to the present day, how do you see the story of the Precious Blood Sisters contributing to broader evolutions or broader changes within the Catholic Church itself?
1: Okay, um for the... Precious Blood Sisters, they Chinese, okay. So now, in 1979, when China opened up to the outside world, there were Catholics in Chinese societies, and they were able to come out and to say, we, 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 we are Catholics. Mm, and then seminaries began to appear in China contents began to appear. Now, here is one tricky point. that China accepted the existence of Catholic Church, but it would not accept foreign missionaries to come again to preach the religion. So if we did not have foreign priests and foreign nuns to preach the religion, then who should shoulder the task? That would be Chinese priests and Chinese nuns. So because of such a change, the Precious Blood Sisters, they went to China after 1979 to help those sisters congregations in their education, in um, their upbringing of the younger sisters, and in their uh, work with the local people. So I would say that the history or the story of the precious blood sisters were actually very precious to those sisters in China at that time and also in, at the present because they, they, these Chinese sisters of precious blood, they were able to give out the story how they, well, as a small group began to grow as a big group, and also as the only local congregation in the Catholic Church in Hong Kong, because in Hong Kong here, um, all the societies and congregations are foreign except the Precious Blood Sisters. So the Precious Blood Sisters were unique, but still they were able to find their role in the church in society. So for anyone who wanted to find their roles in the church, they would like to learn from the precious blessed sisters, especially the Chinese sisters or virgins in China.
0: Well, Cindy, you've written this really wonderful book about such an important subject, um, very thought-provoking, and as you've indicated, a book that opens up both new archives, but also gives us some very important new research questions as we think about the history of uh, Christianity within modern China. we have taken up a lot of your time today, Cindy, but before we wind up the interview, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment?
1: Okay. Well, I'm now editing a book on the Catholic Church in China since 1979. Um, Well, it's based on the papers we delivered in a conference last year and in this book, we have different people talking about the Catholic Church in terms of its organization, in terms of its role in society in China, and in terms of some leading figures in the, ch- uh, in the church. And uh, for the writers, we have Italians, we have Chinese, we have Taiwanese, we have Americans, and now I'm doing the work uh all these chapters together and I hope to be able to publish it next year and also um, well uh, we hope that this book will throw light on what's happening in China um, at the present or to give some ideas of what might happen to China in future and also I'm thinking or planning to have a handbook to have a handbook on the Catholic Church in Asia. Now, then this handbook would be quite, um, quite, uh, dense because it would cover, uh, so many different countries in Asia and it would cover it a long time period. So it would be centuries of history. And I, I would think that that would take me quite some time, maybe at least two or three years to complete. So um, as I mentioned, I have an additive book and I am um, working also on a handbook on the Catholic Church in Asia.
0: Well, that sounds wonderful. Professor Cindy Yik-Ki Chu from Hong Kong Baptist University, thank you for coming on to the show to discuss this important new book, The Chinese Sisters of the Precious Blood and the Evolution of the Catholic Church. Thank you for your time and take care. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.